Good morning. Welcome. This is Just Human number 237. I am back from Great American Restoration Tour in California. It was fantastic. Still a little bit travel lagged because um, I ended up staying there an extra day because we had a whole drama with my flight. And I, it was a, a cluster you-know-what. <laughs> it was a cluster you-know-what trying to leave California. But, man, I had a great time there. And I really enjoyed meeting folks. Um, we had a great event. And, uh, yeah, I feel very blessed to have have been a part of it. And like I said during the event, sometimes these events kind of exhaust me. Um, but they also fill my spiritual cup, you know. And uh, that, that was very true of this event. Um, and it was, not, it was nice uh, getting to meet everybody there. I had a had a great time great time talking to everybody and people were very kind and gracious and um I had so many interesting conversations it was a uh, we got we got to hang out and just I don't know like we just had so many great discuss it was um at some of these other events and this is no this isn't a knock against uh like any of the fans or anything, but like some of the other events, you know, like people meet you and they're just like, hi, great to meet you. Like your stuff. And, um, you know, you just have this quick casual conversation, which is fine. It's totally, totally fine. And and I enjoy that. But at this event, um, the fans that I met there, so many of them I've seen in chat for years now on, on my show, on, on devolution power hour on defected. I mean, I've seen these same usernames, um, for so long and to put a face with them or to, uh, see them again was great. And then they, it was like, hi, how you doing? Nice to meet you or nice to see you again. And then we immediately launched into a meaningful conversation and that was great. So it was like, I talked with somebody for five, 10 minutes, then like next person, five, 10 minutes of like meaningful conversation, then another meaningful conversation. And, uh, it was just great. It, it was just, it was just really cool. And I'm really thankful that, uh, we went to, we, that we went to California, you know, like, uh, maybe not the best time of year to go. And, um, you know, definitely an expensive, uh, event. Um, but it was totally worth it because we found a, like a hardcore community of America first Patriots that, um, probably get shorted when it comes to events like this, you know, just cause it's California and you don't expect to see that. So, um, it was, it was really great. And yeah. And like, um, like Annie just said in the chat, like you hear it over and over again that people say, no, California is way more red than what it seems like on, on TV. And, um, I, I certainly believe that. So anyway, great event and I'm happy to be home. Um, the dogs mauled me when I walked through the door. Oh my gosh. The, no, my whole, my whole, my, uh, my human family couldn't get a, couldn't get a hug or a kiss in. It was, it was all the dogs, all the training went out the window. Um, but man, it was, uh, it was great. Yeah. Rocky's girl. I agree about Colorado. Yeah. So good morning to all of you guys. I have, I have a lot to cover this morning. I am sure I won't get through all of it. Um, you know, I've been gone for a week and a lot has happened. 
as seems as seems to be the the usual. Uh, and then late last night, like after I'd already picked out all my show topics, Trump's team makes this huge filing in the DC case. I mean, in the the Docs case. And there's no way I can go through it today. If if I wanted to go through that that filing, it would be the entire show. So instead, we're going to go through um, uh, an assortment of things that I I want to cover that have happened since over the past week. And um, we're going to try and fly through them. Going to try to be pretty quick. So in in that vein, uh, to get started here, I want to fly through these sponsors and ways to support the show. Of course, this is a user supported show. And um, I really appreciate all your support. It's you guys that subscribe to my Substack, which you can subs- you can subscribe for free. Everything on there is free and always will be. And if you're interested in a podcast version of the show, it comes out usually about one to three hours after the show is over. And I put it out through my Substack. You can listen to it on Substack or through the Substack app on your phone, or you can point the Substack to go toward you, to your favorite podcast player. It's very easy to do. And once you set it up, that's it. It's set up. Um, so thank you to everybody who subscribes to my Substack. Uh, that is the number one way to support the show. Substack is the best way if you want to get a paid subscription there. But there are other options if you just say like, eh, I don't really want to sign up for a subscription. But you feel motivated to contribute to the show. The best way to do that is Ko-Fi. You're basically buying me a cup of coffee. Ko-Fi.com. Hit this link in my link tree or in the description of the show. And you can buy me a cup of coffee. Coffee is absolutely essential. <laughs> it's it's my most favorite thing in the world. Um next to Formula One. And then Benson Honey Farms. Awesome family and awesome products. If you click the link on my link tree or in the description of the show, it's an affiliate link. And any wonderful honey or soap or candy or whatever you get there, they kick a few dollars my way out of your purchase. Bootleg products, same deal. Affiliate link in the description of the show or here here on my link tree. Delicious products. I use their products all the time. Feed my family with it. Everybody loves it. If you make a purchase over here, they kick a few dollars my way. Manly cans, same thing. Valentine's Day is coming up. Go pick out a manly can for the man in your life. Easy, quick gift that they're sure to love. They got great products over there. You buy one of those, they kick a few dollars my way. Merch, have some merch. There's some shirts on there. There's some other stickers, things like that, but glasses. But the best thing is the coffee cup. Everybody loves the coffee cup. I had a few people come up to me at um, the event in Santa in Irvine and uh, tell me that they have my coffee cup and they absolutely love it. It's just as good as what I have advertised it to be. It's an excellent mug. And then lastly, if you just want to do straight Venmo and buy me a cup of coffee, there's the link. Also, just real quick, a lot of people have asked about the John Bonet Ramsey episode because it's come up in conversation. I, I kind of dropped it. Uh, I mentioned it on a Devolution Power Hour or Defected, one or the other, a couple weeks ago. I made a playlist for it. So if you just go to playlist over on Rumble, it's right here with this goofy whatever thing I'm doing here. I don't know. Uh, I don't even know what I was doing. But this, uh, this right here. There's the John Benet Ramsey episode, its own episode. Maybe I should do it again. So many people have asked about it. It might be fun for me to re-record that episode and go through the thread from Human Vibration again, and maybe grab some some new stuff, you know, or maybe to do one and try and counter it, try and do an alternative theory. I don't know. There's too much else going on. So if you guys are interested, 
I put it on the playlist there. And right here is where I've been putting clips of the show. It worked out really well last time with the uh, the Batman clip because just the way I introed it, it made for the eight minute and change clip. And then I did a longer version for those who want the longer version. But this is where all the clips are going. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to clip out some of our segments today. So, Run Bike Swim Girl, good morning. Good to see you. And R.L. Skeeter, thank you very much. An incentive for a bonus hour this week with a newly released Trump doc. Just asking. That's a good incentive. Um, you might get your wish. I can't do it today because uh, I got a hard stop uh, today so I can go pick up my toddler from school. And then I got Devilish and Power Hour tonight. So, um... We'll see. Maybe on Thursday I can do it. My thought was I might read the entire thing on Friday. Um, but... Because it's going to take more than an hour. It's like... It's like 60 pages, if I remember right. Um... We'll see. Thank you very much. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, I'm definitely going to cover it. Uh, I just don't know if it'll be Thursday or if it'll be, um, if it'll be Friday. UK Neil, good morning. Thank you very much. Lions Roar, thank you very much. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. All right. And there was one other, I see a 17. Where's that 17? There it is. Mo. Great job at G3. Please come back Southeast. We met in Cocoa Beach. Stay warm wherever you are. Yeah, man. Um, there will be another one in the Southeast. I actually know the location, but I'm not sure I can say it yet, but it'll, I, it's in the South. It's on the East coast, uh, mid East coast. So, uh, yeah, you'll be, you'll be happy and maybe we'll meet again. So, all right, let's see. Let's go. I already have this pulled up. All right. So the first place we're going to go is, is, uh, the Seth Rich Foya case. Now we had, you guys probably remember this, but um, we had the judge ordered back in November. He made an order that the FBI had to turn over some stuff. Let me just go ahead and open this up. And there was some fake news about this. Of course, people got a little bit carried away. A little bit carried away about what was ordered in this. Now, it says, with the exceptions of Seth, Rich, Seth Rich's laptop. Now, this is back in November, okay? And Huddleston is the guy suing the FBI. It's a FOIA case. And he wants the FBI to turn over basically everything that they have from Seth Rich. And um, this case has been a one of those slow jogs where you, you feel like nothing's happening. And um, the FBI is fighting it every inch of the way. You know, it's like this trench warfare kind of thing. You're just going trench by trench um, in the legal sense. And... Um, but it's paid off. And I think, I think I remember a filing that detailed that Huddleston has spent something like he might've spent close to $200,000 by now. If I remember right. Uh, so it's also an expensive battle. And he got the judge to order the FBI, um, to release some, some stuff. And right here, 
FBI's motion for clarification and alternative, blah, 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 denied. Uh, FBI, and another order for the plaintiff clarification, granted in part, denied in part. Here's the meaningful stuff. Order, the government shall produce a Vaughn index addressing the information it possesses on the compact disc containing images of Seth Rich's personal laptop that is responsive to plaintiff's FOIA request. So a Vaughn index is, uh, it's like a, it's like an accounting of what they have and why they don't want to reveal it. I'm trying to remember the exact term. I'll wake up here in just a minute. A Vaughn index is a document prepared by agencies in FOIA litigation to justify withholding the information under an exemption. Now, this is what's now people are like, ah, oh, that doesn't sound that interesting, but here's what is what's interesting about it. the index must describe each document or portion of each document that has been withheld and provide a detailed justification of the agency's grounds for non-disclosure. That's why that matters. He's basically saying the FBI has to explain what it is they have and why they are withholding it. And that is in regards to Seth Rich's work laptop, the DVD, and the tape drive. They also must produce one for the metadata contained within Seth Rich's work, top, work laptop, which might be the most interesting part, the metadata. Metadata is data about data, if you don't know. And uh, considering the circumstances, what we think happened with Seth Rich and what he was involved in, the metadata could tell a really, really significant portion of the story. It is further ordered, and this to me is the most important thing, and this is where people got a little bit carried away because they didn't read it carefully. It is further ordered that the government and Huddleston, both together, shall recommend to the court a timeline for the disclosure of information on Seth Rich's personal laptop, Seth Rich's work laptop, the DVD, and the tape drive within 14 days following the issuance of this memorandum, opinion, and order. So it's a timeline for disclosure. A lot of clickbait accounts ran with, they got ordered to disclose all the information on it. And that's not what it says, but clickbait gets you more clicks and therefore more money. Uh, so that's what they go with. The timeline is, I like this because they can't produce it all at once. There's no way that would ever happen, that they would just all be dropped all at once. All the information would just come out all at once. It's always going to have to go through exemption processes and redaction processes. And there's active investigations that are related to this, which in and of itself is a white pill. Um, some folks keep trying to twist it into a black pill that it's, they're keeping it active to hide the entire thing. I understand that, why people would think that. Uh, but I actually do believe that there's an active investigation going on. And I believe that Durham contributed to that investigation and it's probably in the classified portion of his report. So this is what happened a while back. Then we had a filing where the FBI changed the person, the FBI agent who had been uh, handling this case or FBI lawyer, F no U S attorney, sorry. The assistant U.S. attorney, I think it was, who had been handling this, uh, retired like right after this order or left, left, left the government service. And they had to get a new person in. So they asked for an extension of time. That took us out to January 12th. So that's where we're at right now. And the filings that everybody has been expected in this case arrived um, about five minutes after I checked into the hotel in Irvine, California. <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, I got the notification on my phone and I was like, oh my God, I got to eat dinner. I got to check into this event. I got to get in my hotel room. I got to go meet everybody. And I just got told there's a new filing in Seth Rich FOIA case that I've been waiting for for a month and a half. Um, and I couldn't stand it. So the next morning I grabbed a coffee and, and wrote this thread. It's worth just reading this whole thing. It's not very many pages. I have this thread over here. Um, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to go ahead and grab the thread cause it's, it's really good. Or grab the actual documents. Cause this, this is fun. All right. Now come the parties responding to the court's order. Okay. And they're supposed to be doing a joint filing. All right. So it's both the FBI and Huddleston writing in, or Ty Clevenger's his attorney, uh, writing this, this document. Okay. They both contributed to this first, the FBI's one the, or their portion. The FBI intends to seek reconsideration and clarification of aspects of the November 28th memorandum and order. Uh Oh, so here's the FBI with their expected delay tactic. Instead of providing what the judge ordered, they are saying, we're actually just going to ask you for clarification and reconsideration instead of complying. And they're waiting until the very day, last day to do it. Specifically, the FBI intends to seek reconsideration of the court's determination that Seth Rich's work laptop, the DVD and tape drive collectively referred to as the work laptop are agency records subject to FOIA. The FBI will also seek reconsideration regarding the portions of the order requiring the FBI to prepare and provide indexes or produce metadata. In the same pleading, the FBI will argue in the alternative that if the court does not reconsider its prior determination and reaffirms its finding that the work laptop is an agency record, the FBI will then argue that the work laptop and its contents are exempt from disclosure under FOIA's Exemption 7A. In addition, the FBI will also request clarification to determine if 7D grant if the 7D granted to withhold information on FBI's FD302. So they've already the judge has already granted that that the the FBI's uh, 302 is exempt under 7D. They're going they want to see if they can get it extended to the CD containing images of Seth Rich's work laptop. Now this isn't my understanding. This isn't images like they took a picture of it. This is images like forensic images where it's the an exact copy of Seth Rich's laptop that had been transferred to a foren forensic image on a CD. So you put the CD in and you can look at the entire content of the laptop on that CD, but you can't alter anything. The FBI also intends to assert Exemption 7A to exempt from disclosure the CD containing images of Seth Rich's personal laptop. So let me scroll up because I grabbed the definitions and kind of laid this out here because um, they kind of put it out in a kind of a, a little bit of a confusing way. So FBI, their position is they're going to seek clarification. They want this stuff reconsidered. They want the work laptop reconsidered as a foyable agency record. They want uh, clarification and reconsideration of the FBI having to provide um, Vaughn indexes and produce metadata. And if the court does not reconsider these things, or if it reaffirms its order, then the FBI is going to argue that the work laptop is exempt under 7A, and the CD containing images of the personal laptop is exempt, exempt under 7A and 7D. 7A 
is could reasonably be expected to interfere with law enforcement proceedings. That's what that exemption is. 7D is could reasonably be expected to disclose the identity of a confidential source. That's long been my opinion, or my suspicion, I should say, that Seth Rich was a source. And that Seth Rich was working with the FBI in regards to the original intrusion into the DNC servers that happened like in August of 2015 or whenever it was. I'd have to look it up again. It's just been my opinion that I think, I think Seth Rich was already working with the FBI on this intrusion thing. And then the so-called hack happens later on in this, what was it? The spring of 2016. So I think that the reason I think this, the seven D exemption is coming up because they're trying to protect Seth rich from being disclosed that Seth Rich was their source. Now, it could be some other source, but that's just a suspicion I've had for a long time, is that he wasn't simply taken out because um, of him going to WikiLeaks or whatever, which has never been proven. It's just that everybody suspects he went to WikiLeaks. It's, there's never been a, a source to prove or any documentation or anything to prove that he actually provided anything to WikiLeaks. It's an assumption and a belief, which is reasonable given some circum given some things that have happened, right? So based on the foregoing, the FBI proposes the court enter a briefing schedule for the FBI's anticipated motions. The FBI proposes to file its combined motion for reconsideration or in the alternative motion for summary judgment on or before February 8th. Much of plaintiff's position below is irrelevant to this FOIA case, and the FBI does not concede to any of it. But they're not going to respond to it. So that's all the FBI wrote. Now, like, I'm just going to point out, it's pretty, it's kind of, I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert, but it seems pretty bold of the FBI to be ordered to disclose this stuff and to have a month and a half to do it. And all they're doing, they're not, they don't have to a month and a half to disclose. They have a month and a half to propose a timeline for disclosing. And instead of filing this right here, this right here, what they just wrote here, this is a this is one, two paragraphs. Really, it's one paragraph plus two sentences. They could have written this the day after the order came out. They could have filed this right here the day after the order came out back on November 28th and got this started sorting here. But they're definitely trying to delay. They waited until not just the last day. They waited until the last hours of the day to even contact the plaintiffs and let them know they were going to do this. So next part is Huddleston's filing. And it is fire. It is fire. Before I before I read it, thank you to everybody over on on Pilled. Nice to meet you, Karen. It was wonderful hanging with you. Thank you for the gold pills, everyone. Good morning, A from PA. Appreciate you. All right. This is fire. The plaintiff's position. A, the FBI's de facto motion for yet another extension should be denied. 
On November 28, 2023, the court, quote, ordered the FBI and Huddleston to provide a suggested timeline for disclosure of the documents. November 28, 2023, memorandum and opinion. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the FBI has thumbed its nose at the order rather than provide a suggested timeline. The FBI has moved the court to give it yet another extension of time so it can file yet another motion for reconsideration and clarification. The timing of these events is noteworthy. In an effort to expedite matters and resolve any potential disputes, Mr. Huddleston's counsel first contacted the FBI on November 29th, 2023, to discuss production, so the day after that, that order. And he has emails attached to prove this. On December 11th, the FBI claimed it needed a 30-day extension of time because of a change in counsel. Mr. Huddleston did not oppose that request, and it was granted. The FBI did not respond to Mr. Huddleston's original attempt to confer about the production schedule that they had given the day after the order. So his counsel followed up by email on December 7th, 2023, and again on January 5th, 2024. The FBI did not respond. Plaintiff's counsel sent multiple emails thereafter, including a detailed draft production schedule sent at 8.55 p.m. on January 9th, 2024. The FBI did not respond. Instead, the FBI waited until 8.21 p.m. this evening, the day all of this was due, to let Mr. Huddleston know that it would not it would not submit a proposed production schedule at all. It would just ask for more delays. The FBI could have moved for reconsideration and clarification weeks ago, or it could have moved for reconsideration and clarification today, concurrent with the filing of this document. So like they could have filed a proposed schedule today, but then also asked for reconsideration and clarification. They could have complied with the order but also asked for reconsideration and clarification. They could have done them both. The FBI has not explained why it has been sitting on its hands for six weeks with respect to reconsideration and clarification. Instead, it just presumptuously demands further delays, and it does so in violation of the court's rules. And as explained below, the FBI is desperate, very desperate, to delay production until after the November 5th, 2024 presidential election. That is Huddleston's allegation. And I think, I'm not, I mean, I don't know. But I kind of think Huddleston and Ty Clevenger got so pissed off at the FBI waiting until the night everything was due that they wrote this filing just like in a word, just like spun up. And it is so good. It's bad faith should not be rewarded. If the FBI wants to contest the memorandum and continue fighting to withhold public documents, then it has a, then it has a remedy. It can petition the court of appeals for a writ of mandamus. So instead of seeking clarification, if you got a problem with this, you should just appeal it. And if the FBI wants more time to produce documents, then it can ask the Court of Appeals for a stay. Notably, the FBI's Office of General Counsel was willing to stay open until after 9 p.m. this evening just to produce the non-responsive excerpt above. So surely it can burn a little midnight oil to petition the Court of Appeals. 
Perhaps a hard production deadline from this court will inspire the FBI to fish or cut bait. B. The FBI should produce all responsive documents before the 2024 presidential election. In 2022, the court observed that Mr. Huddleston and or his counsel have been trying to get responsive records from the FBI since 2017. The FBI originally claimed it had no records whatsoever about Seth Rich, but little by little, the FBI was forced to admit that it had thousands of pages of responsive documents, not to mention his work laptop, a copy of his personal laptop's contents, a DVD, a tape drive, and also the metadata. After more than six years of delays and denials, it is time for the FBI to come clean. A presidential election is fast approaching and voters have the right to know, one, whether the FBI knowingly framed one of the front runners, former President Trump, and two, whether the FBI is still trying to cover up its partisan political activities. The court previously has faulted the defendant for trying to delay the production of records in this case. Quote, the vague and dragged out timeline defendants suggest cannot be sustained without a greater showing of exceptional circumstances because stale information produced pursuant to FOIA request is of little value. That is from Payne Enters Incorporated. Huddleston v. Wait, wait, sorry, that's a quote. In plaintiff's reply in support of correction motion, blah, 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 Mr. Huddleston made the court aware on May 12th, 2023 that report on matters related to intelligence activities and investigations arising out of the 2016 presidential campaign, a.k.a. the Durham report. Back on May 12, 2023, Huddleston filed the Durham report, making the court aware of its contents, wherein Special Counsel John Durham documented the FBI's attempts to frame President Donald Trump with false allegations that President Trump colluded with Russian agents. The FBI and the Department of Justice have admitted that there is a direct link between Seth Rich's work laptop and Russian collusion. Specifically, they have admitted that there is a direct link between Seth Rich, his work laptop, and the purported hacking of the Democratic National Committee emails that were later published by WikiLeaks in 2016. The court is certainly aware of the fact that Mr. Trump is running for president again. He links to Trump's campaign. And that the election date is less than 11 months away. The Seth Rich records are matters of extraordinary public interest. And for good reason. It is bad enough that the FBI personnel took opposition research from the Hillary Clinton campaign and used it to open a bad faith investigation of Mr. Trump, thereby sabotaging him for more than two years. It would be considerably worse and considerably more scandalous, however, if FBI personnel knew all along that Seth Rich, not Russian hackers, was responsible for leaking DNC emails to WikiLeaks. If the FBI and Justice Department have kept that fraud under wraps for more than seven years, then the electorate might, may rightly ask what else the FBI and Justice Department have been doing to frame and or sabotage President Trump. In particular, voters might ask whether the Justice Department's ongoing prosecutions of Mr. Trump are politically motivated. All of the cards should be on the table in advance of the 2024 presidential election. 
Mr. Huddleston therefore submits that the FBI should be compelled to produce the lion's share of responsive documents not less than 120 days before the November 5th, 2024 presidential election. The FBI will almost certainly make excessive redactions and withholdings. Of course, the 120-day lead time would give the court time to rule on any redactions or withholdings by the FBI. In an effort to narrow the scope of the search for responsive records and make that deadline achievable, Mr. Huddleston proposes the following search and production sequence. So Huddleston is complying with the order and he's giving, uh, he's giving the FBI a tongue lashing here to put it, put it mildly, I guess. Uh, one, the FBI should produce all metadata, including file names, from the work laptop, the DVD, the, the tape drive, and the compact disc within 21 days of the court's order. The metadata should be extracted within a few hours and perhaps a few minutes, or it could be. Metadata is data about data. It summarizes a set of other data and can include information such as, one, how that data was created, Two, when the data was created. Three, why was the data created and who created that data, where the data was created, and how big the data is. Mr. Huddleston's primary interest remains the same. He wants to know if Mr. Rich was the source of the Democratic National Committee emails that were published by WikiLeaks in 2016. If Mr. Rich downloaded DNC emails onto his work laptop or personal laptop, then metadata and file names should reveal one, the names of the email files, the time and date of the of that of the emails that were sent and received, and three, the person who sent or received the emails. In other words, the metadata and file names would allow Mr. Huddleston to determine rather quickly whether Mr. Rich played a role in the email leak. On the other hand, the metadata would not reveal the contents of the emails. Ergo, standard FOIA exemptions such as privacy would not be implicated, and the FBI would not need to devote personnel time to reviewing each line of metadata. Accordingly, 21 days should be more than enough to produce the metadata and file names. Mr. Huddleston, number two, next wishes to see documents that may be relevant to Mr. Rich's murder. The FBI should be directed to produce all emails or communications from March 14, 2016 until July 10, 2016 that meet the following criteria and in the following order of priority. A. Emails or communications exchanged with any representative of WikiLeaks, including Julian Assange. B. Emails or communications exchanged with eBay or any representative of eBay. C. Emails or communications regarding any eBay transactions. D. Emails or communications exchanged with Pratt Wiley or discussing Pratt Wiley. E. Emails or communications exchanged with John Podesta or discussing John Podesta. F. Emails or communications reflecting conflict among or between Seth Rich and any of his co-workers or supervisors. G. Emails or communications reflecting conflict among or between Seth Rich and any other person. E, or no, H, emails or communications containing threats of any kind, such as termination, employment, or bodily harm to Seth Rich. And finally, I, emails or communications that contain the term pizza.
bullet point three. Next, the FBI should search for, review, and produce files of any kind that, pre- that reference or relate to eBay, WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, Pratt Wiley, John Podesta, Pizza, or electronic payments such as Zelle, PayPal, or Bitcoin. Four, after the metadata and file names have been produced to Mr. Huddleston pursuant to paragraph one, he should be allowed to designate and prioritize specific files for review and production. After the metadata and file names have been produced, the defendant should produce any remaining files at an expedited monthly rate. Let's see. In this case, the plaintiff filed his request 44 months ago. If one counts the original FOIA request filed by plaintiff's counsel, then the delay in this case has been 76 months. Accordingly, a production rate greater than 3,000 pages per month is warranted. And he used this other case to argue that. I'm, I'm kind of skipping some of that. In a related case, the Northern District of Texas, which is where this is, ordered the FDA to compress its proposed production period from 23.5 years to 26 months. The delay in this case has been considerable and the level of public interest is high. Therefore, Mr. Huddleston proposes a production rate of 20,000 pages per month. Respectfully submitted Ty Clevenger. So, This filing is absolute fire, guys. And I honestly think the FBI just messed up. Like, I think it was way too bold of them and presumptuous of them to wait till the final hours of the final day they could comply with the order and then not comply and make a filing that is one paragraph and two sentences which ask for reconsideration and clarification. A filing they could have made, they could have written this right here. It's all it is, is this right here. This. They could have written this as a one-page motion the day after the judge ordered the disclosure or the proposed timeline be, be, be uh, filed. One, they could have done it the next day. Instead, they waited a month and a half until the final hours of the day of the due date to make to to write this right here, and they told Mr. Huddleston to go shove it. Ignored him for a month and a half. Didn't seek to work together at all, as the judge asked, or judge ordered. So here comes Ty Clevenger, and he's like, F you. Here we go. I'm just going to One, I'm going to chastise the FBI for all the problems they've caused me and how terrible they're being and how the Durham report proves that they framed President Trump and they took hostile, you know, they took uh, opposition research and used it to open an investigation into President Trump. And they've been delaying this over and over again. And we got an election coming up and it looks like they're doing it again. And then he proposes his timeline and it's very specific it's well laid out, it's well explained, it's well justified, and then he says, look, the FBI has had enough time. They've had enough time. Look at these other cases. Look at these other cases where the where the, a judge has ordered the government 
to produce so many thousands of pages per month. And those cases were shorter than this one. And the FBI is asking for a, a rate of like 500 pages per month in this case. No, 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 no. They need to produce 20,000 pages per month. They've had all the time in the world to get this done. Enough is enough. And I love that he's saying, look, they have a, they, all of this should be done within 120 days of the election. Right there. The FBI should be compelled to produce the lion's share of responsive documents, not less than 120 days before November 5th, 2024 presidential election. So thinking ahead and thinking about what that would look like. Imagine we're in, imagine we have, have something from the Seth Rich cases, an October surprise. Like we get this October surprise that <clears throat> Seth Rich really was the source of the WikiLeaks emails. Or even that he wasn't like anything, like any, like we, Whatever they're trying to, whatever they're hiding in this case, like I know most people think it's very nefarious and the FBI is trying to cover up uh, for the deep state. I, I personally don't think so. I think it's more that um, this is, they're just trying to, I think they're trying to prevent setting a precedent that you can get access to so much stuff so easily, which it hasn't been easy. And I think that's the point is to make it extremely difficult to get access to this stuff. Um, to dissuade people from trying. Uh, I also think there are active investigations going on that are preventing them from disclosing more. And so I think some of their arguments are justified, but the way they're going about it is actually helping Huddleston in the sense that it gives the judge more. It justifies the judge coming down hard. It's like enough is enough. Like there's no, there's no more room for excuses. And uh, I think, I think they messed up here, but whatever. I think I, this judge has, this judge has given them enough allowances on a lot of things. And then he keeps on like getting, it's like, it's like he started off more amiable to the FBI in their position in this case. And then he keeps on moving away from that and getting more and more amiable towards the plaintiffs. So this case is headed in the right direction. Um, I would also love it. Like maybe we'll get some stuff about this, about CrowdStrike and about the DNC hack. Um, oh, well the, Annie, they have said that. Yeah. Uh, they do have legitimate reasons and they, to delay and they, they have said that they have filed those legitimate reasons. I mean, an ongoing investigation, like those exemptions up here for seven, seven D and seven a, those are legitimate or at least those are legitimate excuses usually and as regards specifically this case, I believe them to be legitimate. I don't know them to be legitimate. They can prove they are legitimate in front of the judge by an in-camera review, a private review with just the judge and them. And they can show, Hey, this is why this is the investigation we got going on. This is what would be revealed. We can't, we can't allow this to become public right now. So, They could do that. But the judge could also say, actually, no, 
that <laughs> they could do they could try that and the judge could be like actually no you're not justified in this because this is an investigation that'll never have anything because the targets of it are overseas and it's been seven years and you guys have no there's no reason to to think that they're going to be extradited that they're going to be arrested in russia or ukraine or wherever and extradited here anytime soon and everybody knows who they are So, the absolute fire. See, I think like, you know, it's like one of those things where the FBI like stalls and stalls and stalls, of course. And then Huddleston, they waited to the last minute. They basically gave Huddleston the finger and Huddleston came back with a fire filing. You put yourself in the judge's shoes with this filing. Who, which party is more, only one of these parties complied with your order. Only one of these parties treated the other party with respect and tried to make a joint filing. I don't think the judge is going to be happy. I don't know that he's going to grant everything Huddleston is asking for, but I don't think, I don't think the judge is going to be happy that the FBI waited until that day, the last day to make a filing like that and then not comply with the order at all. Next. So over on lawfaremedia.org, which is a left-leaning site, um, or at least an anti-Trump site, okay? I mean, they, they do journalisming, but you got to be aware that it's, it's the left, right? But they do have some useful links over here, such as this Section 3 litigation, which is all about getting Trump off the ballot. So they have this really useful chart over here that I've been uh, referencing to help keep track of the, the ballot um, challenges in the various states. And I'm going to go ahead and link it in chat just in case any of you guys want to grab it and save it because it's just, it's just a useful reference and a good map. But I want, you to, I want to show you something real quick. So notice when I hover over the state, it tells me who the parties in the case are. See, I don't know if I can zoom in on a map like this. Yeah, it'll let me zoom in and make it a little better. Okay. Okay, so when I hover, it tells me the parties in the case. So in Oregon, it's Nelson versus Griffin. Okay, so I want to show you something. In California, Castro versus Weber. In Alaska, Castro. In Arizona, Castro. In Nevada, Castro. Utah, Castro. Idaho, Castro. Mon Montana, Castro. Wyoming, Newcomb. Colorado, Anderson. New Mexico, Castro. Texas, Castro. Oklahoma, Castro. Kansas, Castro. Minnesota is Grow. Wisconsin, Castro. Michigan, Davis. Illinois is Administrative Challenge. Let's go to Maine. It's Trump B. Velos. New Hampshire, Castro. Vermont, Castro. Massachusetts, Administrative. New York, Castro. Pennsylvania, Castro. New Jersey, Bellocchio. Delaware, Castro. West Virginia, Castro. Virginia Administrative, North Carolina, Martin, and a case from Castro. South Carolina, Castro. Florida, Castro. Louisiana is Reeb. I went through all those because, as you notice, there's one guy who seems to be filing over half of these ballot challenges to Trump, right? 
Well, that one guy got indicted. <laughs> there was a sealed indictment of this Castro person. John Anthony Castro was indicted on 33 counts back on January 3rd. It was unsealed on January 9th and he was arrested. I'm not going to go through this whole filing because we just don't have time today. Uh, well, I don't know. It's 11 pages, but yeah, we might go through it. So this is Ca Johnny Castro. He had decided recently he was going to be a Republican and then filed to run for president in Texas and decided that he would make all these cases in all these different states trying to kick Trump off the ballot. So he's, he's running against Trump and he's trying to get Trump kicked off the ballot in all these states. He's the person responsible for over half of these 14th Amendment Section 3 ballot challenges, saying that Trump is disqualified because of January 6th. So check out this indictment. Castro resides in Florida until 2016 when he moved to Mansfield, Texas. Castro is a law school graduate but is not licensed to practice law in the United States. Castro claimed to be a federal practitioner, quote-unquote, and registered as a, quote, enrolled agent with the IRS. Castro owned and operated a virtual tax preparation business under the name Castro & Company LLC from locations in Orlando, Mansfield, and Washington, D.C. Castro employed multiple individuals, including family members, as part of his business. Between 2016 and the present time, Castro devised and executed a scheme to defraud the United States by falsely creating and submitting false tax returns on behalf of unsuspecting taxpayers. Taxpayers would seek out Castro's assistance in filing personal tax returns, and Castro would promise a significantly higher refund than taxpayers could receive from other preparers. On many occasions, offered to split the additional refund with the taxpayers. In order to achieve these larger refunds, Castro generated false deductions that were not based in fact and which were submitted without the taxpayer's knowledge. And he goes into the background of IRS and United States tax law, blah, 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 2018. Taxpayers have to do this and taxpayers have to do that, etc. So here's his scheme. In or about February 2018, an undercover agent identified herein as the UC contacted Castro and Company LLC for assistance. The UC asked to meet with Castro in person, and Castro's office responded that face-to-face -face meetings required a $5,000 retainer. On or about February 13, 2018, the undercover agent spoke with Castro over the phone regarding UC's planned 2017 tax filing. This conversation was recorded. During the conversation, Castro told the UC that he could project the amount of tax refund that the UC would most likely obtain from another firm and then compare that to the figure that he could have with Castro if, and then they could split it. So he would be like, yo, if you go to H&R Block, they're probably only going to get you this much of a refund. But if you come to me, I'm going to get you over twice that and you just have to split that with me. Castro stated that he would split the additional tax fund with the UC. On or about February 13, 2018, Castro sent the UC an email asking the UC to upload certain documents to a website des designated by Castro. The UC uploaded a W-2 form and a Form 1098-T showing wages of $142,217. On or about 
March 2nd, 2018, at Castro's direction. A Castro employee interviewed the UC over the phone regarding any deductions. This call was recorded. The employee stated that Castro would make any decisions regarding what items would be included on the filing. The UC denied having any unreimbursed employee expenses, charitable donations, or other items that might cause deductions. Castro's employee did not specifically identify any deductions that would apply to the UC. On or about March 12, 2018, Castro provided the UC with his tax analysis. Castro explained that if the UC utilized another tax preparer, the UC would receive a refund of $373. Castro stated that if the UC utilizes his services, the UC would receive a refund of $6,007, which he could then split with Castro after deducting the $373, resulting in the UC receiving $3,008 instead of $373. The tax proposal indicated that the return would include $29,339 in deductions, but did not identify specific deductions that would be utilized. Castro did not provide the UC with a draft to the tax returns that generated the refund identified above. On or about March 14, 2018, Castro filed the UC's tax return, which claimed $29,339 fraudulent deductions. The itemized deductions included $2,400 in employee expenses and $28,600 in other expenses that were listed as deductions. These were not expenses that the UC had identified or discussed with Castro and were not based on information provided by the UC. So the, the undercover agent didn't, you know, frame him here. He didn't influence him to do this. Castro did it on his own. These false statements resulted in a claimed refund of $6,007. On or about May 10th, 2018, the IRS issued that refund of $6,007. Castro received $2,999 for his services, and the UC received $3,008. Castro engaged in a similar pattern with other customers and taxpayers, as identified below. Many of these victim taxpayers, once they learned about what Castro had done, in terms of false deductions, demanded copies of their tax returns. Castro often delayed in providing the returns to the taxpayers for several months or even longer. Many of these victim taxpayers have filed amended returns in an attempt to correct the falsities that Castro submitted, which has caused significant financial hardship. For many victim taxpayers, Castro would refuse to engage in communications once questioned about the filings, or he would take retaliatory action against the taxpayers. So count one through 33, they're all, they got them on three, 33 instances, it sounds like, of him doing this fraud. It's violation of 26 USC 7602, or 7206, part two, aiding and assisting in the preparation and presentation of a false and fraudulent return. Castro did knowingly and willfully aid and assist and procure counsel and advice, advise the preparation and presentation of to the Internal Revenue Service of false taxpayer information and deductions to exaggerate the claim. Now they have them listed here. All of these. Signed. Leah Simonton, United States Attorney for Texas, Northern District, Fort Worth, 
awesome. <laughs> I laughed so hard when this came out. I laughed so hard. It put the bit, my, my face was hurting from smiling so much that this guy, I wonder how many media reports there are on the left praising this brave Castro guy for bringing all these cases against Trump to try and get him off the ballot only for him to be exposed as a tax, as a fraud and a criminal in a tax preparation scheme. As, as Burning Bright said at, uh, I think it was Burning Bright, he was making the point at, um, at the Badlands event that the enemy really isn't sending their best to some of these things, you know? All right, let's go to the next one. Menendez. So, <laughs> it's so funny. Oh, it's so funny. All right, so Menendez, I haven't actually found the filing. I saw the news report about it, so you guys are going to have to bear with me while I find the filing in this case. But over here, the superseding indictment, we already gone over the second superseding indictment here, but there was another um Menendez's wife. There's been some other there's been some attorneys moving around in here and um Menendez's wife filed a motion to sever. Um and I want to read that. I think it's this one right here. So she wants to she wants to take her case out of Okay, it's just one page right here. Please take notice, motion to sever Declaration Denny C. Oronado, Honorado, January 15th, the company member of law, defendant Nadine Menendez, through her undersigned attorneys, will and hereby does respectfully move this court before the Honorable Sidney Stein for an order severing Miss Menendez's trial from defendant Senator Menendez. Okay. Is there a motion like making the argument, memorandum, and support? Okay. I want to see what they say. Yes, Mr. Goldbar. It's Golden Jubilee. <laughs> Did any of you guys watch him speaking on the Senate floor about his Golden Jubilee? I just... I just... I I just it's so fun. his attorneys must have been just absolutely pulling all of their hair out and drinking themselves into a coma as he was on the Senate floor talking about his case. The dumbest thing he could possibly have done is go to the Senate floor and talk about his case. And then to say he was his golden jubilee is ruined. When he has a case about receiving gold bars as bribes. Okay. Um, under federal criminal rule. Under, under, blah, blah, blah. Start again. Under federal rule of criminal procedure 14A, the defendant Nadine Menendez moves to sever her trial from that of her husband, Senator Robert Menendez. Severance under rule 14A is warranted, quote, if there is a serious risk that a joint trial would compromise a specific trial right of one of the defendants or prevent the jury from making a reliable judgment about guilt or innocence. This is the precise situation for Miss Menendez. 
A joint trial with Senator Menendez will undoubtedly prejudice Ms. Menendez's right to defend herself at a fair trial. We ask the court to sever her case or sever her trial from that of Senator Menendez. We understand that Senator Menendez may wish to testify at his own trial and that his testimony would include revealing confidential marital communications with Ms. Menendez that Senator Menendez deems essential and material to his defense. However, Ms. Menendez maintains her right to assert and intends to assert privilege as to her confidential marital communications. Thus, at a joint trial of Senator Menendez and Ms. Menendez, the court would could be the court would be presented with an irreconcilable conflict between husband and wife with respect to the admissibility of confidential marital communications. Severance of the trial of Senator and Ms. Menendez would enable Senator Menendez to fully exercise his constitutional right to testify in his own defense without subjecting Ms. Menendez to unfair prejudice through the admission of her privileged confidential marital communications. Yes, Elaine Watkins, yes, they are they are throwing each under each other under the bus, aren't they? Senator Menendez and Ms. Menendez each have a constitutional right to testify at trial. Each of them also have a fundamental privilege not to testify adversely to their spouse. A joint trial would force the married defendants to make a Hobson's choice as exercising their right to testify in their own defense may necessitate waiving their privilege against providing testimony adverse to their spouse. A severed trial would permit both Senator Menendez and Ms. Menendez to exercise their constitutional rights while preserving their adverse spousal testimony privilege. Hmm. All right. Marital communications privilege permits either spouse to assert privilege. However, testimony essential to a spouse's defense in a criminal case must be permitted, even if it discloses confidential communications from the other spouse. All right. So the thing about this is they were in cahoots together. Uh, as you guys know that, um, as you guys know, um, when Menendez, like the way the scheme worked is that Miss Menendez was Senator Menendez's point person. Uh, so she would talk to the Egyptian Intel agents and to Wael Hanna and, uh, the other guy, I can't remember his name right now. Um, she would interact with them and communicate with them and then transfer those communications to Senator Menendez. And I mean, it wasn't always that way. There was direct communication between Senator Menendez and some of the players involved, but not all. She was the, she was the inner, the middle person. And she got the no show job at ISEG Halal um, as part of the bribery deal. So in exchange for her being this middle person, she got a no-show job paying her tens and tens of thousands of dollars a year. And, and then she would uh, set up meetings between Menendez and the Egyptians. And they would let her know whether they were happy or not about what Senator Menendez was accomplishing for them. Uh, she, I want to say it was her. Yeah, it was her who took the gold bars to a jeweler. I'm pretty sure it was her who took the gold bars to a jeweler to have them appraised or to sell them. Um, I can't remember if they, I think she actually sold some of them. She was the person who went and did it. 
So she's an essential cog in this uh, bribery scheme. And as regards the Qataris, if I remember right, um, she wasn't involved with that initially. Senator Menendez actually initiated that. He had he went to he he went to the middle person and suggested the scheme of the Qatari involving the Qataris in their bribery thing. Uh, so anyway, she's she's essential, and I think it would be really fun if they can flip Nadine Menendez against Bob. Like, I understand why she wants to sever because they're going to, like, if you imagine it's going to be husband and wife in the courtroom and the prosecutor is going to be showing all these marital communications between them and showing how they coordinated uh, this bribery scheme and getting money and getting paybacks and all this stuff. And uh, Menendez is the guy who's most, like, he's the reason that they were doing this at all, right? He's the one with the power. She had no power. She was just the wife who took some money on the side in exchange for handling these communications while her husband literally influenced U.S. foreign policy to the benefit um, in, the, in terms of hundreds of millions of dollars in deals and um, lifting of, you know, like just he's the one with all the power as he ran the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the chair of it. So he's the main person. He's the main cog. He's the whole reason this thing exists at all. But she was the conduit for it. So I could see why she wants to sever it because to a jury, they're going to look at them as a team, right? They're going to see them as a husband-wife team engaged in this bribery scheme and influence peddling scheme. And so however bad he looks, it's going to reflect on her. So it totally makes sense from that perspective that she wants to sever it. But to me, it's like, oh, this is... This is an opening here for DOJ to try and get her to flip. Because now, like, there's trouble in their little paradise. Uh, Menendez is going down, and so she wants to get away from have her own trial and try and play, I was just the wife, and he was the super smart senator, and I didn't know what I was doing. He just told me to go and do these things, and I thought that I was helping. Like, she's taught... She's definitely going to play like some sort of innocent thing where she didn't realize anything about this was criminal. She just thought they were gifts. She just thought that my senator was really, my senator husband was super successful and he was getting gifts for doing his job. And I was just, you know, I was just there to be, to support him. So I, I think it's an opening for DOJ to be like, yeah, how about, how about you testify against your husband and we will lower your charges. I like it. And Goog, who I see, Googleithu Malungu, good morning, sir. Immediately, and several people sent this to me, but to me it was like, oh yeah, isn't there a drop about the wives? There's a drop about the wives, isn't there? There we go. There we go. These people really are stupid. Menendez in particular, I mean, like their whole scheme was really stupid. Um, as far as how they got caught and everything, like <laughs> it's pretty laughable. 
Okay. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. So I got Menendez. I got Seth Rich. I got Carlos. Nice. All right. We got some stuff about Hunter. Um, I think the stone one will be a little quick, but let's go ahead and do Hunter because... Yeah, that's true, Arl Skeeter. She did go to some of the meetings. She was at the IHOP restaurant to meet them and facilitate. Yep, yep, she did. She's more involved than she's going to portray. Uh, but she's also she's going to portray herself as having no power. She wasn't at all the meetings. Uh, there were a couple messages where um, she like he messaged her and said, uh, "I'm I'm currently meeting with such and such." at this restaurant and she'd be like, how's it going? Oh, it's going really well. And she's like, yay. And that kind of thing. Like she's the, the communications indicate she's aware she wasn't at every meeting they had though. Um, but they disguised a lot. See, I kind of think I still like, I think back to those, those two names that are so similar, Arslanian and Aslanian. And I just keep wondering if they're related or if there's like a typo or something. Because what are the odds that two of the players in this scheme have a name like Arslanian and the other one has a name like Aslanian? Only missing one letter. Like it seems like the kind of thing that could be a typo and they're actually related. But anyway, she wasn't at she wasn't at every meeting and she was the one in the uh the original superseding indictment or in the original indictment. She was the one who was communicating to the Egyptian intel agents, not, not the people wanting the halal, running the halal business, the ISEG halal certification business. She was, she was handling the communications between actual Egyptian intel agents or officers and Senator Menendez. They were messaging her and she was passing it on to him. And so I think she was doing that on purpose to try and provide a screen between uh, the, the Egyptian intel agents and the senator. So she's told she's totally like in on it. She's a key key cog, but it's fun that she wants to sever. Okay, over here in the hunter buying gun case, it's been a while since we've looked at this, and there were a bunch of filings on January sixteenth yesterday. So this is the response. Two motion by USA is to honor hundred. Oh, oh, this is one to dismiss. This is the motion to dismiss? Response to that motion to dismiss. There's another one based to dismiss on immunity. Another motion based to uh, let's see, hearing for discovery. Motion to dismiss indictment, failure to state a charge. And motion to dismiss based on appointment appropriation of, of Weiss. So we have several responses here from DOJ, well, special counsel, from special counsel Weiss to Hunter Biden's motions to dismiss. You guys may remember back in December, it's been a month and change since all these motions to dismiss came up and Hunter Biden's attorneys filed these motions to dismiss based on several things. The most interesting one is that the gun law that he's charged with violating shouldn't be a law at all because of Supreme Court rulings back in June of 2022, uh, which is great because there shouldn't be any gun, gun laws <laughs> like these that he's charged for. This is hilarious. I hope everybody appreciates the humor of this. 
that Hunter Biden is charged with a felony for, for violating a firearms law, which shouldn't exist. So, like, really, we're over here as 2A enthusiast, uh, which I'm sure most of the audience is, being like, these, these gun laws are totally unconstitutional. And so we're actually kind of like, we support Hunter Biden. <laughs> like, we want Hunter Biden's charge on this to be, if we're being, if we're being intellectually consistent, we would want Hunter Biden to not be charged with this gun crime. Okay, this is opposition to this. This is, has to do with special counsel appointment. Let's see. Was this the one with the image? One of these, uh, for the first time we saw, we have a picture of the gun that's at issue in this case. I don't know if it's an exhibit or if it's in the filing. I guess it's an exhibit. Okay. This is selective and vindictive prosecution. Dang, these things are long. I may not be able to go. I'm not going to be able to go through all these. Um, I may have to thread all these out. Special counsel Weiss does not hold back. Man. He's got a lot to say. He has got a lot to say about this. Okay. All right, which one is the one for the gun law? Let's see, constitutional. Okay, this is the one right here, the document 71 that has to do with the... Okay, I'm going to have to figure these out. Hmm, hmm. Because I definitely don't have time to do all of these. This makes me want to skip to the stone thing. And then I'm going to have to go through these before Devolution Power Hour tonight and grab stuff. As you guys can tell, I haven't read these. This is the first time I'm opening them up. Um, I got home late on Monday night. And then yesterday was, you know, hang out with family, go to, did a little bit of work, but try and catch up on news and catch up on emails and all that stuff and grocery store all those things. So I didn't have time to go through all these. Uh, they want this evidentiary hearing. This is the shortest one. All right. So I'm going to have to go through these other motions to dismiss and pick those out. I'll probably do a thread about it. Um, but what, what is this motion for discovery? This is actually the shortest filing. And also this is pretty interesting. Defendant's motion. This is United States opposition to the defendant's motion for discovery and evidentiary hearing regarding his motion to dismiss. Okay, we're gonna go. Let's go to um, let's go to the the Roger Stone stuff, and I'm gonna set this Biden stuff aside so that I don't I don't want to rush through it either. Um. I want to give it the attention it deserves. So that means I'm going to go ahead and uh, you guys can go ahead and understand that between now and Friday, we've got a big Trump filing to read, and then we've got several Hunter Biden filings to read. Okay, before I get to the stone, there, stone thing, there is um, 
in the Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton case. Okay, this is the civil RICO case. We haven't talked about this in a long time. And I have a long thread on it that I need to update now because there's been a couple filings in this case. Let me refresh this. Um, one thing I noticed about it, uh, well, on January 5th, um, oh no, let me go back. January 2nd, Rodney Joffe's counsel withdrew, which may or may not mean anything. And then on January 5th, there's an order for extension of time to Trump that was granted for them to uh, make their filing, okay? But in the other RICO case, that that is the, the one that that is appealing, let me go and grab it. Trump v. Clinton et al. Trump v. Clinton and her cohorts. I noticed that there's been several motions. Robbie Mook. Okay, on November 16th, Robbie Mook's attorney withdrew. And then on December 21st, Rodney Joffe's attorney withdrew from the case. So I'm just wondering if something's afoot. I, I just, I can't help but wonder. And it's, it, it may, I'm, this might be too squirrely of me. But Durham referred. There was a lot of news that the Durham report didn't have any referrals, and that's not true. The, the referrals he made refer, uh, were in regards to Rodney Joffe and the Georgia Tech researchers and an employee at DARPA. And so I just kind of wonder if he's changing attorneys. Like it says right here that he's gonna, this guy's going to be retiring from this law firm. But I just, I just kind of wonder if something's afoot where... Rodney Joffe is changing attorneys because he needs a different type of defense attorney because he's facing an, an indictment or he's going to be called to testify against uh, the Georgia Tech researchers or the DARPA person. I just, I just, I just something. So I just think that something might be going on and MOOC change. Like, it wouldn't if it was just like one person, I probably wouldn't notice or like think much of it. But the fact that it's Mook and Rodney Joffe within a month of one another changing attorneys, it makes me it makes me wonder that something's afoot. And they're getting a different set of attorneys because they're expecting charges or yeah, Gook, yeah, change of expertise. Um I'm just wondering. So I'm just throwing that out there that we may see something come up and then we look back at this withdrawal of attorneys and we're like, Oh, that's why that happened. So just a quick, just a quick update on that case, which we haven't talked about in a long time. And, um, it's still out there. All right. Now let's talk Roger Stone, which ca I caused a lot of controversy yesterday. <laughs> Not a lot, but I caused a little bit of controversy yesterday. In regards to Roger Stone. And I'm I'm sympathetic to it, by the way. I understand I understand. So the Capitol Police, what spawned this is the Capitol Police and the FBI have reportedly launched an investigation into Roger Stone in regards to comments he made 
about um, committing violence against Democratic representatives back in 2020. Now, I am very firmly in the camp that Roger Stone is swamp. And many people are very firmly in the camp that Roger Stone is not swamp. And that he's framed as being swamp. I say he's framed as being a Trump ally. <laughs> um, but what Dawson says here is true. Stone was previously caught on tape threatening to kill Donald Trump's children in retaliation for Trump not helping J6 coup plotters. That's literally true. And when I saw this, when I saw this news, I was I immediately just like, good. Media are always going to portray Trump, portray Roger Stone as pro-Trump to obscure the fact that he is swampy, just like Trump and his team will pretend they don't know he's swampy to obscure the fact that they are baiting him into a counter intel trap. This has been playing out for eight years now, uh, if not longer. It must be longer, actually. And a lot of people were shocked by that, and I can understand it, but I just, I want to go through and inform you guys of why I think this, why I'm of this opinion. And if you ultimately disagree, that's fine. Uh, and I could be wrong, but I really don't think I am. And and even if, even if I thought I thought there was something really clever at play here, uh, Stone has made so many indefensible comments that I I can never I, I can never look view him in a positive light. So this original story that came out yesterday uh, says Capitol Police are investigating remarks made by pro-Trump political operative. Remember, the media is always going to describe him as pro-Trump. But if you look at all the things Stone does and says, he's not pro-Trump. Discussing the assassination of two prominent House Democrats, a source told Mediaite the FBI is aiding with this investigation. And actually, I should go ahead and tell you guys this. This is one of those instances where something we've talked about for a long time, since really the very beginning of this show, that you have to develop a cognitive filter so that you can get through some of the, the, the info war. You have to have a filter that guards against misdis and malinformation, but you also have, a, have to have a filter that guards against the spin that various media put on news reports. Because they've got their own bias, and they're always going to spin things towards that bias, and that's true of the left and the right. And in this instance, for stories about Stone, you basically have to go to hostile media from our perspective you have to because the media on the right will never report stuff like this and if they do they will spin it their own way too um so you have to develop that cognitive filter and ignore some of this stuff some of the spin and just go to the nuts and bolts of it okay and this is one of those occasions this mediaite story Last week, Mediaite published an audio recording of the comments, which were made weeks before the 2020 election, in a, in a conversation between Stone and his associate, former NYPD cop Sal Greco, about reps Jerry Nadler and Eric Swalwell. Quote, It's time to do it, Stone told Greco. 
quote, Let's go find Swalwell. It's time to do it. Then we'll see how brave the rest of them are. It's time to do it. It's either Swalwell or Nadler has to die before the election. They need to get the message. Let's go find Swalwell and get this over with. I'm just not putting up with this shit anymore. Oh, by the way, I need to warn people. Those of you who listen with like any kids around or anything, um, Stone Stone is about to use a whole bunch of profanity. Just fair warning. In a new statement to Mediaite, Swalwell said the comments should be taken seriously by law enforcement and Congress. The FBI, which does not confirm or deny ongoing investigations, declined to comment when reached by Mediaite. The United States Capitol Police did not offer a comment either. Both Swalwell and Nadler serve on the House Judiciary Committee and have their own histories with Stone, who was convicted of federal crimes in connection with Special Counsel Mueller's Russia investigation. His sentence was commuted by then-President Trump right before he was supposed to be sent to prison, and then later Stone was pardoned in regards to that Mueller investigation charges or conviction. A few months before the Cafe Europa audio was recorded, Nadler announced the Judiciary Committee would be investigating why Stone's sentence was commuted by Trump. Stone has adamantly denied making the comments, even after the audio was published. The infamous political operative claimed the audio was poorly fabricated AI-generated fraud, all because I am loyal to Trump. That's what Stone says about the audio. He says it's fake. It's, it's, a, it's a deep fake. It's not real. Greco, who, so that's, we should put it, we should just note that down, that Stone says it's fake. Nobody's proved that it's fake, but nobody's proved that it's real, okay? So, those are the two positions. Greco, who was fired by NYPD in 2022 over his association with Stone, did not deny the conversation in a statement to Mediaite. I don't think your reader is interested in ancient political fodder, is what he said instead. So, would have been good for Stone if this guy Greco had said, yep, that's fake. He never said that to me. But he didn't say that. Instead, he said, ah, nobody's interested in that stuff. Which isn't a very good defense. Mediaite also reported on a conversation between Stone and Greco in which Stone called to abduct and punish Aaron Zelensky, the prosecutor who led the case against him as part of the Mueller probe. All right, so I'm going to play the audio. Before I play the audio, there is an advisement here. Um, one, that it has some language, but um, there's, a, there's a part here about editing. Where is that part about editing? Well, this is restatement, but where is the audio? It's quite as fake. I'll find it in a minute. All right, let's just play the audio real quick. You can follow up either Stalwell or Nadler has to die before the election. They need to get the message. I'm Diana Falzone, senior media reporter for Mediaite.com. Pal about assassinating... I'm going to skip her talk. Stone has vehemently... We do indeed uh, where is it? reporting before the 2020 election. There. All right. So what she says at first is that we reported we had that there was audio of this. Stone denied that such an audio existed. Said he never made such comments. And then she said, "Okay, well, actually, we do have the audio. We publish it." And then he says the audio is fake. Go find Swalwell. Get this over with. 
time to do it. Then we'll see how brave the rest of them are. Either follow either Strawwell or Natalie has to die before the election. They need to get the message. I'm just not putting up with this shit again. Our source told us that this. Now, Stone wrote a post on, on X saying, I never spoke about assassinating anyone. Fake mediaite can't produce the recording they claim to have. They have no audio of me threatening to dim com congressman. Where is it? Post it. Well, then mediaite did post it. They, oh, they, here it is. Mediaite does say it has been lightly edited in order to protect our source, who requested anonymity out of fear of repercussions from Stone, whom they believe to be dangerous. So what editing was done, we'll see. But, you know, if this ever ends up in a court case, the validity of this, Stone is indicating that if this ever ends up in a court case against him, like he gets charged for this, then he's going to challenge the validity of the audio. Uh, and, and, you know, we'll cross that bridge when it gets there. Rogers spent election day in the months prior calling for acts of violence. That's the, the thing about it, though. Like a lot of people dismiss this, and this is true. I'll tell you, I'm inclined to believe this audio is authentic because it fits with Stone's other comments. <laughs> it, it's not like, whoa, I can't believe he said that. It's like, yeah, that sounds like something Roger Stone would say. This article is from, from 13th September 2020. So this would be before that audio recording. Roger Stone to Donald Trump. Bring in martial law if you lose the election. Roger Stone, blah, 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 blah. Longtime Republican trickster, blah, blah, blah. Stone, and also a favorite of Alex Jones. Massive red flag there. Stone was sentenced in part for lying about contacts with WikiLeaks during the 2016 election regarding emails hacked from Democrat Party accounts. That's right. Stone back in... Stone is a... Stone is a... um a player in the original Russiagate scheme because he was communicating with uh, Guccifer and WikiLeaks and was encouraging them to release emails. And in him doing that, he was setting President Trump up as if President Trump had some involvement in obtaining those emails and getting Russia to leak them. Stone was the guy who was trying to, behind the scenes, think think about who he has to be and the type of people he would have to be connected to, to be able to DM back and forth with Guccifer and WikiLeaks and arrange for these emails to come out. He was setting Trump, he was setting up the narrative, he was helping to set up the narrative that Russia leaked the emails to help Donald Trump win which adds to the narrative that Trump asked the Russians to hack the emails in the first place. Stone did not turn on the president. Well, that's debatable. Both men were in Nevada on Saturday, Trump holding campaign events while St Stone sought to raise money for himself. Oh, imagine that. Imagine that. Citing widely debunked claims of fraud, blah, blah, blah. Stone was hanging out with Alex Jones. Um, and then talks about ballots and all this stuff. Stone also advocated for an election day operation using the FBI, federal marshals, and Republican state officials across the country to prepare to file legal objections and, if necessary, to physically stand in the way of criminal activity. In an interview broadcast Saturday, 
Trump told Fox News he would happily put down any left-wing protests, blah, blah, blah. Okay, next article. This is from September 27th, 2022. Roger Stone promoted violence and sought pardon after January 6th, evidence shows. Shortly after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, as authorities began arresting people across the country, the political operative Roger Stone started texting his lawyer representing President Donald Trump with a lawyer representing Trump in his second impeachment trial seeking a pardon. So around that time, Stone is trying to get a pardon, not for what he was already pardoned for. He's trying to get a pardon for January 6th. And he says, there will be mass prosecutions, mark my words. The text messages are part of a trove of video evidence Danish filmmakers have turned over to the House Committee investigating the January 6th, 2021 assaults on the Capitol, which also shows Stone threatening violence and spelling out plans to fight the election results. Some of the material was expected in the panel's next hearing, which had been planned for Wednesday, blah, blah, blah. At this point, I'd be happy if he pardoned me and Carrick again, Mr. Stone wrote to Mr. Schoen, who was the attorney representing Trump. And then Bernard Carrick is, is Carrick. He's already pardoned both of us before, so he would not take any heat for it whatsoever. Mr. Schoen answered, if he can be the only president impeached twice, maybe you should be the only person pardoned twice. Ha ha ha. The footage shows Mr. Stone using bellicose language and laying out plans to create and exploit uncertainty about the election results to help Mr. Trump cling to, to power. So here is where I have a problem with Stone. And this is the language warning for everybody. Even if Stone is not a swamp creature, okay? He is still so far off the reservation. He is so reckless in his, in his speech that I don't want anything to do with him. And I don't think Trump should have anything to do with him unless he's trying to catch him. Because Stone's reply was, fuck the voting. Let's get right to the violence. Shoot to kill. All right. So anybody who says that is not a Trump ally. I'm going, to, I'm going to say that right here. I'm just going to plant that flag. Anybody who says that is not an ally of Trump. They are not MAGA. They are not a patriot. And this is consistent with other comments Stone has made, which is why when I see this and I hear this recording of him, I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds exactly like something Stone would say because he makes comments like this. Let me see, will this play in here? I'm not sure this will play within the archive. I don't think it will. The committee obtained the footage from the filmmakers after extensive negotiations issuing a subpoena and then traveling to Copenhagen to spend a week going through the evidence. They received about 10 minutes out of 170 hours of footage from a crew that trailed Mr. Stone for more than three years to make a documentary entitled A Storm Foretold. I've talked about that on this show before. That Stone had a documentary film crew following him around in the lead up to January 6th. Christopher Gold Branson, the filmmaker who followed Mr. Stone off and on for more than three years, said he had provided the panel with clips they specifically requested, but turned down similar requests from the FBI because he didn't want to work with law enforcement. Well, 
this puts a smile on my face because the FBI wanting these clips tells me the FBI is investigating Stone. Quote, their interest was gravitating around Roger Stone and his relationship with the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys in particular, and his role communicating with them before and after January 6th. If you guys don't know, Stone has been a longtime friend of Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, specifically the very, those specific people who have been convicted for their role on January 6th. He met with them in his hotel room on January 5th. Mr. Stone, a Florida resident, has long maintained close ties to Proud Boys, especially Enrique Tario, the group's former leader who lived in Miami. Mr. Stone has also been associated with another top member of the Florida Proud Boys, Joseph Biggs, who was arrested two weeks after the storming of the Capitol. During his time trailing Mr. Stone, Mr. Gold Branson learned that Mr. Stone had developed, quote, very close relationships with both Tario and Biggs. Mr. Gold Branson also captured Mr. Stone comparing plans to challenge the 2020 election with tactics similar to those used in 2000, etc. We're challenging the election. We're challenging them in court. This is a quote. If the electors show up at the Electoral College, armed guards, guards will throw them out. That's that's not a Trump ally. Mr. Stone said in one clip, adding that Mr. Trump should say, quote, the judges were, go- we're going to our judges I appointed. You're not stealing the election. Mr. Stone said in another clip that he believed the vote results would still be up in the air after Election Day. The key thing to do is to claim victory. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. I don't, got a pro- I don't got a problem with those. I don't got a problem with those comments. Let's see. Mr. Stone, Mr. Trump's wife, they believe we're stopping the president. Two stiffs, Mr. Show instead of them. In one clip, Mr. Stone said he planned to make a movie poster called Witch Hunt 2, that he said he would include a big picture of Merrick Garland. Blah, blah, blah. Those are all fine. Those comments are fine. When James A. Baker III urged George W. Bush to declare victory, he was hailed as a genius. I did the same thing. Now it's called criminal conduct. The Brooks Brothers model is claiming victory. If I never communicated with any of this to Trump, what difference does it make? Stone said. Uh, let's see. In a later statement, Mr. Stone said, quote, any claim, assertion, implication, or accusation that I knew in advance about participated in or condoned any illegal activity on January 6th of the Capitol is categorically false. It's hard to believe that when he's best friends with the people who did conduct violence at the Capitol. And he met with them the night before. Let me see if I can grab the video of it. This right here is an article I've gone through before with you guys. Might be worth going through again, at least quickly anyway. All right. As a mob ransacked the Capitol on January 6th, Roger Stone hurried to pack a suitcase inside his elegant suite on the fifth floor of the Willard Hotel. By the way, He's in that Willard Hotel, which is the same room where Flynn and Pal and some other, and Byrne were, but he wasn't involved with them. He wrapped his tailored suit in trash bags, reversed his blackface mask so its free Roger Stone logo was hidden, then slipped out of town for a hastily arranged private flight from Dulles International Airport. Quote, 
Quote, I really want to get out of here, Stone told an aide as they were filmed at the hotel by the Danish camera crew for the documentary on the veteran Republican operative. Stone said he feared prosecution by the incoming attorney general. He is not a friend. Stone allowed the filmmakers to document his activities during extended periods over more than two years. In addition to interviews and moments when Stone spoke directly to the camera, they also captured fly-on-the-wall footage of his actions, candid off-camera conversations from a microphone he wore, and views of his iPhone screen as he messaged associates on an encrypted app. Reporters from the Washington Post reviewed more than 20 hours of video for the film entitled A Storm Foretold. The footage, along with the other reporting by the Post, provides the Post's comprehensive account to date of Stone's involvement in the former president's effort to overturn the election and in the rallies in Washington. Stone privately coordinated post-election protests with prominent figures, and in January he communicated by text message with leaders of far-right groups that have been involved. The filmmakers did not capture conversations between Stone and Trump, though, but on several occasions, Stone told them or his associates, that he remained in contact with the president. This is a lie. At least I believe it to be a lie. And the reason I believe it to be a lie is because in Roger Stone's memo to Trump asking to be pardoned in relation for January 6th, he gives Trump his phone number. Why, why would he feel the need to give Trump his phone number if he and Trump are allies and longtime friends and he remains in contact with them. Like. That's not what you if you're in, if you're in contact with someone. Then they already have your contact information. Why do you feel the need to, to send them your phone number again? Stone has refused to give testimony and evidence to the House Committee investigating the January 6th attack, citing his rights under the Fifth Amendment. On the day of the attack, he packed his bags and told the filmmakers the riot was a mistake and would be really bad for the pro-Trump movement. On the e Well, he's right about that, but he helped set it up, I think. On the eve of 2020 election, however, he seemed to welcome the prospect of clashes with left-wing activists. In a recorded conversation to an aide, he spoke of driving driving trucks into crowds of racial justice protesters. Stone said, quote, once there's no more election, there's no reason why we can't mix it up. These people are going to get what they've been asking for. Stone declined requests for an interview. In response to questions, he said, he said in an email that he had no involvement in the January 6th riot. Quote, any claim or assertion or implication, blah, blah, blah. I read that. Without providing specifics... Stone accused the Post of employing a clever blend of guilty by association insinuations, half-truths, anonymous claims, falsehoods, and out-of-context trick questions. He suggested the clip, video clips of him reviewed for the article are deep fakes. So again, he is saying, no, these are deep fakes. You attribute things to me I never said, but he didn't cite examples. Stone moved quickly after Trump's defeat to help mobilize the protest movement that drew thousands to the nation's capital on January 6th. He privately strategized with former National Security Michael Flynn and rally organizer Ali Alexander, who visited Stone's home in Fort Lauderdale in late November 2020. 
A few hours before the January 6th attack, the video shows a member of Oath Keepers who has since pled guilty to seditious conspiracy was in Stone Suite at the Willard Hotel. Other rooms in the same hotel were used as a command center by Rudy Giuliani and other advisors. Stone was not part of their effort. That is key. That is key. The footage indicates, and he said he feared the top organizers were trying to exclude him from the rally. Yes, they were. Stone used an encrypted message app later in January to communicate with Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes, who is also now convicted of seditious conspiracy, and Enrique Tario, who is also now convicted. Prosecutors have said that Rhodes erased some messages from his phone before it was taken by the FBI. A federal judge considering the lawsuits filed by Trump uh, against Trump by Democrats and Capitol Police officers over the January 6th said in an order in February that Stone's connection to Trump, the Proud Boys, and Oath Keepers may prove to be an important one. Stone did not permit filmmakers to record him. Get this. Stone, make, Stone did not permit the filmmakers to record him for a 90-minute period covering the height of the violence on January 6th. A Stone aide blocked a cameraman from entering his hotel room, claiming that Stone was napping. When he eventually got inside, Stone was speaking on his phone. After he left Washington, Stone lobbied for Trump to enact the Stone Plan, a blanket presidential pardon to shield himself, Trump's allies in Congress, and the America First movement from prosecution for trying to overturn the election. But the plan, along with a bid by Stone to win pardons for other Trump backers, including convicted mobsters, was ultimately thwarted by White House counsel Pat Cipollone. Stone said, quote, clearly Cipollone fucked everybody, Stone told Stephen Brown, a friend then in federal prison on a fraud conviction. Cipollone was aware of Stone's request for pardons and opposed them, according to a person familiar with the situation. See you in prison, Stone wrote that evening in a message to another Stone associate, or Trump associate. In an inauguration day call with a friend, Stone directed his rage at the man who had confided in him and consulted him for decades, denouncing Trump as, quote, a disgrace and expressing support for him to be impeached. He betrayed everybody, Stone said. This is what Stone is saying about Trump. Stone has been a combative Republican strategist, blah, 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 dirty trickster, blah, blah, blah. All right. Stone says this video is fake. I think it's real. But Stone says it's fake for what it's worth. Oh, let me get it right. 70. Let me get right here. Jared Kushner has an IQ of 70. He's coming to Miami. We will eject him from Miami very quickly. He'll be leaving very quick, very quickly, very quickly. He has 100 security guards. I'll have 5,000 security guards. You want to fight? Let's fight. You and your abortionist daughter. So in this video, he I want to show it from here. Um, He is shaking. He is shaking with anger. Like that's not the car making him shake. He is he himself is shaking with anger. And he's what is he angry about, guys? He's angry that President Trump won't give him a pardon for his role in January 6th. I'm done with this president. I'm support I'm going to go public supporting impeachment. I have no choice. He has to go. He 
has to go. Run again. You'll get your fucking brains beat in. I'm, I'm done with this president. I'm, I'm going to go public supporting impeachment. I have no choice. He has to go. He has to go. Run again. You'll get your fucking brains beat in. So, there's actually a longer clip of that video, but I don't have it right here. But there's a longer, there's a longer version of it. Um, let's see, did I grab it here? Oh, here it is. Here's, a, here's the full version. I'm sorry. Here's the full version. There is no Vatican, cocksucker. It's one sentence. One sentence. So if you're in a meeting and he says that, you punch him in the mouth as hard as you can to make your point. It's one sentence. We're not stupid. There is no paperwork, you cocksucker. He needs to be impeached. He needs to be denounced and impeached. The greatest single mistake in American history. Greatest single mistake. He's surrounded by morons. And he when he says the greatest single mistake in American history, he's talking about Trump. He's saying Trump is the greatest single mistake in American history. He surrounded himself by morons. And a good long sentence in prison, he'll give him a chance to think about it. Because the Southern District's coming for him, and he did nothing. You want to fight? Let's fight. Fuck you. Fuck you and your abortionist bitch daughter. You, obviously, if you use any of that, I'll murder you. And then he tells the filmmakers, if he use it, the, any of that, I'll murder you. Uh, so this is his uh, stone plan uh, where I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he's he's asking Trump for a pardon and he's uh, telling others that uh, and a pardon for others, but mostly for him. Now, look, totally understand people disagree with me about stone. Um. But, yeah, like, I can't get, I can't get all clever with this one. I can't get all clever with this one and be like, oh, it's kayfabe or it's, uh, um, like there's, like there's something else going on here. Stone is actually an asset or like, I can't get, I can't get all clever with, with that. Okay. Um, because of the comments he makes, which are calling for violence because of his associations with, uh, proud boys and oath keepers. Um, it's just, it's just way too much. I mean, he doesn't, he goes too far. So even if it's like, even if it is like, there's some sort of clever thing going on here. Right. Um, it's just, it's just too much, man. Um, St Stone has used the Proud Boys as bodyguards for a long time. And he was meeting with them the night before January 6th when they entrapped MAGA. Um, and they went against Trump. They, they went against Trump. On January 6th, the... What Trump wanted on January 6th was for the uh, the objections to be heard. He wanted the senators and representatives to object uh, to the slates of electors. And the plan that Oath, Keeper, Oath Keepers and Proud Boys executed stopped that. And then 
<laughs> it's it's just it's just bad. Um, by the way, whenever I mean, whenever um Stone was got his sentence commuted, who did he celebrate with? He celebrated with the Proud Boys, the same Proud Boys who were later convicted. Um, for a seditious conspiracy. Um, January he goes to Washington D.C. right before January sixth, and who does he hang out with? He hangs out with the Proud Boys. He goes and meets them in the uh in the he met them in the parking garage of his hotel and then if i remember right it was the of the hotel of his hotel and then he also met with them in his own room um so yeah it's just it's just way too much like the 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 comments he's made and everything are just way too much for me if if later on if like way down the road we find out that he was part of something clever okay like if, if later on we find out that stone was part of something clever and he uh he said all this i i i still i still can't i still can't endorse it um i can't i can't endorse anybody who uh um or even look even look kindly on anybody who advocates for violence i mean it's just as simple as that it's, it's just as simple as that um, Stone's been working in the swamp for decades and decades and decades. Media is always trying to tie Stone and Trump to be so incredibly close. And I don't think they are. Back whenever, back whenever uh, Stone was convicted, um, during his trial, during his case, right, uh, that, that was uh, from the Mueller investigation, Stone admitted um, under oath that he hadn't spoken to Trump directly since 2015. Yet media made sure to convince everybody that Stone and Trump are super, super close and talk all the time. And Stone would tell people he and Trump talk all the time. But then once he was under oath, he admitted he hadn't actually talked to Trump since 2015. Which means they aren't actually that close. And then here in that document I showed you, he's giving him his phone number. He wouldn't need to do that if they were actually that close. So, you know, I think at best... At best, he's a wild and reckless and bombastic political operative who says things he shouldn't and gets in the way of Trump's what Trump wants and effectively brings down uh, net effects. He brings MAGA down. So like that's that's the best thing I can possibly view him as. Uh, but I, yeah, that's not where I'm at on it. So, um, that's the stone thing. We'll see what the investigation turns up. I would like to, uh, I would very much like it to be, um, fake and these videos be fake, but I have no reason to think that they're fake. And I've seen, I've watched some people who have done other videos trying to show that they're fake. Um, and like they say, well, Stone's hand is covering up his mouth and there's some video artifacts that are kind of curious about that clip in the car. And, um, but it, I don't find it that compelling, um, honestly, because like in the documentary, you see it as a long clip and the, the voice sounds correct. The comments fit with other comments he's made. Um, 
if he can prove if if it ever goes to court and he like hires some attorneys to go through it and some experts to go through it and prove the videos are fake, all right, or prove the audio recording uh, regarding Swalwell and Swalwell and and Nader is fake or Nadler is fake. Sweet, good. I want you know I want to know whether it's real or not. Um, but the person he was with, the NYPD guy, he didn't say that it was fake. Um. I don't have any reason to think that these documentary filmmakers faked that stuff. I don't think they need to fake it. I don't think they need to. Um, and besides, like, even though they say his mouth was covered, his mouth was only covered in some of it. He's turning to them and turning away and turning to them and looking at the way, like he's going back and forth. Um, it didn't sound like audio was spliced into me. Uh, but of course, you know, there are, there are savvy people who can do a really good job of it. So, um, that's that's where I'm at on it. And of course, lots of people are asking, well, what about, you know, Flynn and Stone and uh, Stone being close to other people? In, in my opinion, guys, Flynn is associating with many very bad characters. And I think he's doing it with a higher purpose. That's that's my opinion. I, I think that I I think that Flynn is uh um, I think the plan is 100% a patriot, 100% MAGA, 100% loyal to Trump. And I think that Flynn is still doing work. I think that's why he, I think he goes on Alex Jones stuff because he's still working as a counter Intel guy. I think he goes on these shill shows, uh, that are totally just dis disinformation con artists and grifters. I think he goes on their shows because he's gathering intel on them. I think he's doing counter intel work. And I also think because there's an audience there that he wants to connect with and drop some white pills and get them motivated um, to get involved locally. So I think that I think that Flynn is still doing work and some of that work is dirty. And I don't mean that Flynn is doing anything wrong. I just mean that he has to associate with some less than desirable people. Remember how Flynn was on um, January 6th when St when uh, Alex Jones walked up to him? You could tell that Flynn didn't want anything to do with Alex Jones. And I think we're at a time now where it's like uh, like what Boone Cutler says. Boone Cutler says it's like you got to unite the tribes. Um. I think that that's the kind of stuff that Flynn is doing is trying to make sure that MAGA is represented in all these places, even though they're, uh, there's a lot of dis disinfo and outright garbage that some of those shows and accounts put out. I think Flynn is trying to represent the not garbage and in the hopes that those people will pay more attention to him and then he can channel that into local action, channel that into support for Trump in November and support for MAGA candidates. So um, that's, that's, that's what I think. I think he's still, that's my best explanation for it. Um, and if we, if we find out that later, like I said, if we find out later on that stone isn't swamp, I would be, or I would be absolutely shocked. If we find out he's no longer swamp and that he flipped, I can't tell that. I, I can't tell. I don't, I don't really see any indication of that. Um, so what I'm kind of thinking right now, it's going to happen is that stone's going to catch a charge uh, at some point for his role in January 6th. And if not other things, and that the media is going to work overtime to try and 
try to uh, connect Stone with Trump. And I'm going to do my best to stop that. <laughs> but that's where, I, that's where I'm at on it. And, uh, yeah. So, Filter Dog, thank you very much. <laughs> Never seen the stone cold side of this loser. <laughs> Music and Fiction says a lot of people want Flynn for VP. You don't want a guy who burrows into Charlie Tunnels as a VP. You want him as a CIA manager or disassembler. That's where Flynn's most effective. Yeah, I could uh um I could see that. Yeah. I don't I'm not sure about Flynn being VP. I kind of think Rick Grinnell is the best choice. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, Peggy, yeah, someone told me that Tori says thinks Stone is, is Swamp and has similar opinion to me, which makes me rethink my position because Tori says is a 100% vicious and ridiculous Mistis Malinfo agent uh, and total fraud. Um, so it, like, it, like people have told me that and it's been like, oh, wait, I don't exactly want to be on that boat but <laughs> i can't i can't help it when i uh the evidence indicates it you know just going off of what stone said if you just go off of who what stone says and whose associations are it's not good katiana thank you for the rant they say uh there was a guy mike something on twitter that claims flynn is bad yeah so that's mike gill and he's another he's a crank that dude is a hateful crank who is doing his best to attack Flynn um, along with the Matrix crew and the Authority and all of these other um, asshats. This is going to be a year like that, guys. Like This is going to be a year with um, all these gutter creatures are going to uh, be, be drawn out and they're going to attack... Patriots at every every chance. It's definitely a year to have your guard up. Cat girl, I agree. So Mike Gill is my, I mean, oh God forbid, um, Rick Grinnell is my first choice for VP. I think. I mean, really, my first choice is Mike Pence, but I think I don't think that's going to happen. But uh, Rick Grinnell is my first choice for VP. I really like like that idea. But um, Ben Carson is second. And I'm, I kind of think that as much as I like Grinnell for VP, I think Ben Carson makes a lot of sense. I think he makes a lot of sense. Um, I also think, I think he balances Trump out kind of like Pence did where like Trump could be a little bit wild and get all the attention and he could say things that cause lots of reactions on the left and the right. And then Pence would be like the even like the level head. Right. And I think Ben Carson can do that same thing. Plus Carson served in the previous Trump administration and there's like no drama. Um, he's, he's always been loyal to Trump and he's been going around with Trump campaigning a lot. So I think 
I think Carson makes a lot of sense. Also, of course, you know, uh, the left will struggle to attack him in a lot of things. We've seen their kinds of attacks they bring on him before. They fall flat because they're, are they're, they're not effective because he is so just stoic. Um, so I think... Um, I think that I I like the Ben I think Ben Carson makes a lot of sense, but Grinnell would be the most fun. Um no doubt Grinnell's gonna have a role in the Trump next Trump administration. No doubt in my mind about it. Uh maybe he can have a role. Yeah, R.L. Skeeter. Maybe maybe Grinnell can have a role in the next Trump administration and then go run for governor of California. That'd be great. Um over on Foxhole, um, God is with us said, you might have to, I've already covered this, but why did Trump pardon Stone the first time? I think it's a great question. Originally, um, Stone, his sentence was commuted, which when your sentence is commuted, my understanding is that means you can't be compelled to testify. And then later, Trump pardoned him. So... Why Trump did it, I'm not exactly sure. I would like to think that it was like, hey, you go, I'm going to do this for you, but you got to cooperate with these other investigations. Um, but I'm not convinced of that. It could also be that, um, see, in order for Trump to, in order for Trump to catch the swamp creatures, the swamp creatures need to think that Trump is swamp too. And so Trump doing that, what is the message to the swamp creatures when Trump does that? I think they interpret that as, oh, Maybe this guy can be influenced and purchased. Which I think is what's happening right now. I think we're seeing some of that going on right now. Last night. Last night I think we saw it. When Trump invited Vivek on stage. And I think Taylor French right here. With this image he sent me. This is like, this is perfect. This is the most perfect representation of what happened last night on stage in New Hampshire with Vivek. It's beautiful. Shout out Taylor French. I don't know if he made this graphic, but if he did, awesome. If he didn't, whoever made it, chef's kiss. This is chef's kiss right here. And lots of people noticed that Trump was eyeing Vivek. And a lot of people are saying, including my good friend Karma, who doesn't think that Vivek is all bad, I have to respectfully disagree. I think Vivek is big pharma swamp and Wall Street swamp. And I, uh, I can't stand him. He's a, he's a total poser. I can't stand him at all. Uh, but I just want to advise people. This will be how, be how I end the show. I just want to advise people. Actually, can I like have that? Can I scroll this up and see? No, I can't. Okay.
I just want to advise people. I just want everybody to keep this in mind, okay? In 2016, many, many swamp creatures were part of Trump's campaign. Such as Roger Stone. <laughs> there was even a former CIA director in Trump's campaign. And there was an Israeli intel agent in Trump's campaign. That would be Gal Luft, who many conning influencers tried to present as being some sort of good guy with dirt on the Bidens. I'm sure he has dirt on the Bidens, but it's because he himself is dirty. That CIA director, Woolsey, and Gal Luft were in Trump's campaign, and they were also part of swampy deals with Hunter, Patrick Ho, and CEFC, and they were gun-running in Africa for the Muslim Brotherhood, for UAE, for uh, Qatar, for um, Libya, and they were part of Trump's campaign. All of those people thought that Trump was welcoming them in and that they could influence him for their swampy friends. And they got caught. Trump said Vivek has something special, and I think he does have something special. It's his connections to swampy people, particularly in Big Pharma and Wall Street, and Trump is going to catch them. It's up to Vivek whether he wants to help catch them or be caught too. For now, though, it's important for Trump to gain Vivek's supporters. And having Vivek up there last night, that, that look at Trump's look at how Trump is looking at him. Look at the look look at his face. Look at Trump's face. Make this bigger. Look at Trump's face. Let's try this over. Telling you guys, Vivek is a chameleon. He is a very well spoken, articulate, gab gifted chameleon. A swampy chameleon on Adderall. And Batman's going to get him. And if I'm wrong about Vivek, awesome. Awesome. But his entire political alignment flipped the moment he created his campaign and got millions of dollars from Bill Ackman, whose wife, Nori, received $125,000 from Jeffrey Epstein and who she gifted to Jeffrey Epstein various pieces of art. So, but if I'm wrong, as Karma Patriot just put in chat, I made a bet with Karma Patriot. I told her that if I am wrong about Vivek, I will send her at least 17 acorns from my yard. <laughs> so, all right, I got to run. I got I to gotta run, guys. Thank you all very much. If you like the show, hit the thumbs up. I'll make some clips from today's show. And oh 
boy, do I have a lot of legal filings to go through with you guys. So there's going to have to be a show probably on Thursday and Friday. We'll see. We'll make it happen. I'll figure it out. We'll make it happen. But we're going to catch up on these legal filings and it's going to be fun. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you guys. Hit my links in the link tree or the description of the show if you feel like supporting the show. And, uh, you know, share it around. You guys have a blessed day. Remember, we're not going to win every battle. But we're going to win this war. See y'all later.